Our text for this evening is Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Why does Paul call God the God of peace? This is not Mars, the Roman god of war. This is not Mars's wife and sister, Bellona, who held the reins of Mars's chariot with bloody hands as he fought in battle. This is the god who makes peace by the blood of his own son. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, this is a God of holy, holy wrath, to be sure. But nowhere does Paul label God the God of wrath. Because the goodness of God toward sinners overcomes the wrath of God in the person of his son. But the reality of God's nature revealed in Romans is really nothing new. We've known this about God from the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, when Moses sees the backside of Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh announces his character. And before we get to the two aspects of Yahweh's character that focus on his justice, that is, he is the God who does not clear the guilty, but he punishes sinners, he first flooded Moses with seven aspects of his goodness. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He is the God of peace. What does this mean practically for us? When we go throughout our day, we all feel the weights of war all the time. There's the slaughtered and oppressed innocent lives in places like Ukraine and Afghanistan. There's the war that so many are in fighting today to ensure that women have the right to kill the baby that God is forming in their womb. There is the war that rages inside of you and me every single day between the flesh and the spirit. Paul likens this in Galatians and in Romans to a war that's happening. In the midst of war, we belong to the God of peace. Let this God who makes peace with us by his own peace offering, his own peace sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ, also give you his peace in the midst of the war, in the midst of the wars in which we live. Because one day he will annihilate every war. As Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Now, if Paul only said that, that would be enough to signal what we call an illusion. That is a reference back to something in the Old Testament. But he goes on and he adds another phrase. He says, may the God of peace soon crush Satan under 
your feet. So we have both crushing of Satan and we have under your feet. Now putting those together, we can be very confident that Paul is drawing us back to Genesis 3.15. This is the text that Doug preached for our great encouragement in the faith this morning. And I want us to hear it afresh now in light of Paul encouraging the believers in Rome. Here it is. I will put enmity or hostility between you, that is the snake, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head or crush your head and you will crush his heel. Now, to understand what Paul is doing in bringing us back to Genesis 3.15, we have to go back to the beginning and really trace the whole story. Uh, So this is going to be a quick review. Some of the points that Doug so helpfully gave to us this morning, but also maybe a few uh, other aspects that we're going to touch upon. In Genesis 1, God creates all things with the word of his power including humans, male and female, made in his image, marked with his likeness to rule over the rest of creation as his royal images, filling the earth with his glory. In Genesis 2, God enters the creation, stoops down to scoop the dust and form the man and breathe into this formed man the breath of life. And then the woman he forms beautifully from the man and commissions them to serve in the garden. He provides them with every tree to enjoy, including the tree of life, from which we understand they had to eat. It's the tree of life. They had to eat this tree in order to continue living forever in God's presence. Now, with great absurdity and tragedy, the man and the woman do not overflow with gratitude to God for what amazing blessings he has poured out upon them, but rather they follow the deception of the serpent, the snake in the garden. And in so doing, they eat the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, And God responds with a series of curses, first to Eve, then to Adam, then to the serpent. And what we see the cumulative effect of these curses is the indication that every part of the world has been fractured. The relationship was broken between God and humans, between humans and humans, between humans and the creation. So he expels the first humans from the garden and he guards the entrance to the tree of life so they no longer have access to live with him in their midst. And eventually they would die under his judgment. This devastating blow in our history leaves us all by nature and also by choice objects of the wrath of our creator. But did you notice in Genesis 3.15, the goodness 
of our creator breaks through his wrath. For his curse to the snake not only reveals that the Messiah will suffer, but you will crush his heel, but also that the Messiah will deal a lethal blow to the snake. He, that is the seed of the woman, will crush your head. Now, this picture is what unfolds in the story of Numbers 21. The Israelites are in the desert. They're on their way to the promised land in Canaan. They rebel. They complain. They're ungrateful. Remember that theme of ingratitude. And then God sends snakes to kill them off in his judgment. But God in his mercy provides a bronze snake so that all who would look upon it would be healed. In the same way, Jesus crushes the power of the snake. That is the evil one and also sin and death. By his death and by his resurrection from the grave. John 3.15, we know 3.16, but John 3.15 puts it this way. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. We understand this to be an anticipation of his death on the cross for sinners. And whoever believes in him will have eternal life. But we also learn from John that the cross was not the beginning of Jesus's enmity with the serpent. The struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent begins at least in its intensity in the incarnation. Revelation 12, 4. And the dragon, whom John in this passage identifies as that ancient serpent, again, pulling us back to Genesis Chapter 3, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. But he doesn't devour the son. Under the providence of God, the son escapes. And although he will be repeatedly tempted by the serpent in every way as we are, He will come through every temptation without sin. So Jesus begins his triumph over the serpent first through his perfect life lived in holy obedience to the father and then culminates his triumph over the serpent through the cross. As Paul says in Colossians 2, through the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And then, finally, in the resurrection and ascension, Jesus was seated at God's right hand, Ephesians 1, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now let's go back to Romans 16, verse 20. Now 
listen carefully for the wording that Paul uses here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, why does Paul say soon? If Jesus has already triumphed through his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension over Satan. Let's look at the context in verse 19. I think that helps us to understand what Paul is saying here. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So Paul, in his farewell address to the believers at Rome, knows that unlike Adam and Eve, the Roman believers were living in obedience, he says. And so he's rejoicing in this. He's rejoicing in what? In their current victory over the serpent. However, he goes on to say, Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So unlike Adam and Eve, who were wise at what was evil through their rebellion and innocent at what was good, Paul wants the obedient Romans to keep fighting against the evil in their hearts and for doing good, just like their good God of peace is constantly doing for them all the time. So when Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, I think he means that while God has already dealt the lethal blow to Satan through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, the child born of the woman, a final crushing is still to come under our feet. Your struggle... And mine with sin and evil and death will soon be over. Beloved, take heart this evening. When you look back on your week and you remember the evil of your heart, the evil of your thoughts, the evil of your actions, you remember how unwisely you you lived your life, know that the snake crusher has already triumphed over all human and supernatural evil over your sin and over your death. But how exactly will the God of peace soon crush Satan under our feet? I think we could suggest three clear ways, and perhaps there are others as well. First, when we die, Paul teaches us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We will immediately be with Christ and never sin again. Second, Christ will one day soon throw Satan and his angels into the eternal lake of fire. Revelation 20. Third, God will raise our dead bodies to life. And he will live with us as his satisfied, glorified, joyful people in his presence. Therefore, don't give up the constant fight of obedience to Christ.
Notice that in this fight, it's not just the truth that God has triumphed over Satan and evil and sin and death through Christ in the past, or even that he will crush Satan under our feet in the future. But look at the, look at the final phrase of verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We might add the word now. So we look back to the triumph of Christ. We look forward to the triumph of Christ. But now we have grace. And so it's not about us trying harder this evening. It's not about us working harder, beating ourselves down with self-guilt and self-shame. It's only the grace that comes from our union with Christ that empowers our obedience until one day soon we will meet our snake crusher when we die, when we're raised to life again in our physical bodies to live with him forever in the new garden, the garden city on the new earth in the world to come. One day, soon.